This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We are coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa and are on frequency nine six two five kilohertz on the thirty one meter band to Southern Africa. We are also on channel nine zero two on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spomelele Zondi. In studio with me is Asanda Mataunyane. There's also An Musa Wisani Matebula and Figile Lingwati. Let's take a look at the top stories. DRC election worried about refugees possessing voter cards. Lesotho police investigates executing style killing of five people. In economics, Ghana's annual consumer price inflation rose marginally to 17.7% in December. And in sports, FIFA sacks General Secretary Jerome Volk. But first, the news with Anne Musa. Good afternoon. At least 15 Yemeni civilians have been killed in an airstrike by a Saudi-led military coalition outside the capital. The attack comes as prospects for a new round of UN-sponsored talks to end the war in Yemen dim. According to residents, 25 other people have been wounded in the attack. Families displaced by the nine months of fighting have been taking shelter in the area. A mostly Arab coalition led by Saudi Arabia has been fighting the Iran-allied Houthis who control the capital since March of last year. Nearly 6,000 people have died, about half of them civilians, according to UN figures. A suicide bomber has killed at least 15 people, most of them police, outside a polio eradication center in Pakistan's western city of Quetta. This is the latest militant attack on the anti-polio campaign in the country. Militant group Jundula, which has links with the Pakistani Taliban, has claimed responsibility for the attack. The group has warned of more attacks on polio vaccination officers and polio workers in the coming days. Teams in Pakistan working to immunize children against the virus are often targeted by Taliban and other militant groups who say the campaign is a cover for Western spies or accuse workers of distributing vaccines designed to sterilize children. The Independent National Electoral Commission in DRC says it's worried about voters' identity cards being illegally held by refugees. The concerns come after Burundian refugees were found in possession of voters' cards in the Lucenda camp in the eastern DRC province of South Kivu. Jean-Noel Bamwezwe reports from Kinshasa. The presence of voters' identity cards in hands of tens of refugees living in that camp has brought so many questions among the people of the Democratic Republic of Congo, since this card serves as well as the only identity document in this country up to now. And according to the Commission Executive Secretary, Ronsar Malunda, a multidisciplinary team is already in the Lucinda camp to try and get more light on the worrying matter. Malawian President Peter Mutarika has called out Malawi electoral commissioners over the mismanagement of funds to a tune of 234,000 U.S. dollars. Mutarika says the pollster needs to be transparent over the way it deals with the matter to restore public confidence. 
This is the first time the president has spoken out on the issue since auditors brought the matter to light. The audit report accused the electoral commissions and staff of pocketing allowances and not taking the trips for which they were allocated. The South African Jewish Board of Deputies has lodged a complaint with the Human Rights Commission in the country against an attorney for her comments against Jews posted on Facebook. The country has been in a furore over the past days over various racist comments made on social networks against black beachgoers. Jewish Board of Deputies Chairperson Jeff Katz has the details. The Jewish Board of Deputies have lodged a complaint against Maureen Janssen based on her postings on her Facebook page that Jews are monsters and should be exterminated. We don't believe that this type of comment, given the environment in which South Africa currently finds itself, is consistent with the values that South Africa has fought so hard to establish and to maintain. For Channel Africa News, I'm Asanda Matzaunyani. All right, thank you very much, Asanda, for that news update. Your time is 17.05 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Now, the Independent National Electoral Commission of the Democratic Republic of Congo has expressed concern about voters' identity cards being illegally held by refugees. This was revealed when Burundian refugees were found in possession of voters' cards in the Lucenda camp in the eastern DRC province of South Kivu. Jean-Noël Bamwenze reports from Kinshasa. The Lucenda camp hosting thousands of Burundian refugees who have fled in security situation in their country is indeed in South Kivu, the eastern DRC province closest to Burundi. The presence of voters' identity cards in hands of tens of refugees living in that camp has brought so many questions among the people of the Democratic Republic of Congo since this card serves as well as the only identity document in this country up to now. The situation has created worries at the Independent National Electoral Commission that has expressed the fears of reaching by yes the numbers in terms of voters' registration as well as by yes the results of the different upcoming elections here. And according to the Commission Executive Secretary, Ronsar Malunda, a multidisciplinary team is already in the Lucenda camp to try and get more light on the worrying matter. The Commission is deeply worried since it was informed about the presence of voters' identity cards in foreign citizens' hands, Burundian refugees. The Commission has sent a multidisciplinary team on the field in order to verify the existence of such cards and to check their originality. The team is in South Kivu since a week. Most of analysts here believe the issue should be looked at very seriously in order to know indeed where did these Burundian refugees get voters' identity cards and what are their aims by doing their best to get such cards. An investigation is needed and both the government and the Independent National Electoral Commission have to manage things the way it's required to in order to avoid several consequences, according to this analyst from Africa Connection, Jean-Jacques Bam. I think that the government must 
investigate how did they get this ID card, they must be brought to court so that they can face justice and explain how did they get this ID card. The government has to take this, uh, this matter very seriously because there are so many consequences and among these consequences, these refugees should be able to go and vote. We won't be able to, to know the credibility of the results. This will bring by yesterday results. You know this year, there are so many elections here in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It's only Congolese who must vote. So how come foreigners have ID cards? The Independent National Electoral Commission has to do very well its job. Meanwhile, the South Kivu Civil Society has called on this country's government to make sure foreigners do not use to take chances on the territory of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Jean-Noël Bamweze, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. Human rights organizations and activists say Ethiopian security forces have killed at least 140 people taking part in mass anti-government demonstrations since November. The protests have been sparked by fears that a plan to expand the capital's administrative control into the Oroma region will displace Oroma farmers. The massive anti-government demonstrations erupted in towns across Oromo, home to the country's largest ethnic group, the Oromo, in November. The Protesters and opposition members say they are fighting against an urban plan that would integrate infrastructure development in the capital of Addis Ababa with that of surrounding towns in Oromia. Abdikar Musa is the secretary of the Oromo People's Association in South Africa. The situation in was happening in Ethiopia is just because of a title called the Master Plan. In the Master Plan, when you see it, Externally, it looks like a development, but it had some hidden agenda, which is removing the Oromo peoples from Finfine area, uh, which is currently known as Addis Ababa. So people, they are opposing that master plan so that they mustn't avoid from their own ancestral place. That is a thing. And from in universities, students are demonstrating, and the resolution is a bullet and civil societies are demonstrating, and the, the resolution is becoming a bullet. So the other thing, the government is pretending that they are developing the country. In other side, they are highly uh, hurting the people in terms of uh, human, humanitarian disaster. That is what is happening in Oromo right now. What is it about the integrated development master plan that the Oromo people are not happy about? Yeah, the master plan is, they say, it's all about developing the Addis Ababa, which is expanding Addis Ababa in 100 kilometer radius. But when you see Addis Ababa in the end of early 1980s, the Ethiopian leaders, uh, the Habesha leaders, or the Amhara regions, they fled from their region to Oromia, which is Finfine. In, in the end of 1880s, since that day, they are removing the Oromos from their own land by giving any different ideas. Remember that Addis Ababa used to be called Finfine. They changed that name into Addis Ababa. And now they are passing through so many procedures to avoid Oromos from their own place, and they, are, they want to build their own people in that place. Honestly, they are removing Oromos from their own home and replacing with other peoples. They want to remove Oromos from that side. Culturally, that's it. 
So now with so many people having been killed, how do you think this can be resolved? What is the best way of resolving this issue? Yeah, the best thing to resolve this issue is it's all about answering the people's question. They said the people are requesting according to the constitution of Ethiopia. They say we don't want this master plan. If you say master plan is development, there are some several things that you can do, which is building school, building the infrastructures, rather than avoiding the people from one from their own particular place to the other particular to the other unknown place. So we are saying, or we are asking the constitutional question. They say so. In the government, they don't want to answer. They want to implement that hidden agenda. They just want to remove a row more people from that side rather than answering that very democratic question. They are demonstrating. Listen, first of all, the Oromo people, they don't have weapons. They don't have any harmful uh, material. They just come to the streets and uh, protest for that master plan. They say enough is enough. This master plan, we don't accept if you are a government, you have to listen to the people's heart. As we are a people, we want this master plan. You have to accept from us. And the government, the government, they say, no, we want to implement. If the government wants to implement this peaceful protest, it will continue un- until the final decision of the government. But are the people of Oromo willing to sit down with the government and tell the government what is it that they want? And do you think the government is willing to listen to the people of Oromo and to hear their concerns? No. First of all, if the government uh, wants to develop the people, they should come down and sit and discuss with the people, with the local people, which is Oromo. First of all, they didn't discuss about master plan with Oromo people. Secondly, after the people asked this question, they won't agree to discuss with Oromo people because they want to implement the master plan. So the Oromo people, if the government is ready to discuss with them, they are ready. They want the resolution. That's why they are on, on, on the street and killed by the government soldiers. So are you saying the protest will continue until the government listens to your concerns? Uh, my concern, according to what I'm looking from those um, several social media, this protest did start in November. Till now, people they are protesting. It shows that the protest will continue until the government brings the resolution. That is what I see on my own thing. That's Abdekar Musa, the Secretary of the Oromo People's Association in South Africa, speaking to Ntlantla Mahlangu. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lilian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 
And your time is 17.15 right here on Africa Digest with Ms. Pomela Lezondi on Channel Africa. Now, police in Lesotho have launched an investigation into the death of five people who were killed in an execution-style shooting in the capital, Maseru. Residents in the Haseoli area of the capital have linked the killings to feuds in a traditional music form known as FAMO. Suspicion that FAMO turf, turf rather, are rearing their ugly head again amounting to discuss further we have on the line report hello and welcome to africa digest good afternoon Sumele. now Ntakwana, could you just tell us about uh, these far more turf wars it's not the first time they're happening no it's definitely not in fact all regimes in lesotho have struggled with trying to bring an end to the feuding in the farm or traditional music genre here in Lesotho, it seems that it seems there are uh, sides, particularly from the south of the country, uh, an area called Mafeteng, and there you have two specific uh, groups that seem to be at loggerheads, and they fight through their music. So a lot of the radio stations sometimes don't even get to pick up what they're saying in the music because they speak such deep Lesotho in their compositions and in the songs that they compose. So a lot of them end up playing the music, and when the music is heard, it then incites violence in some of the members or some of their supporters. And this has been going on now for years. It's quietened down a bit, but it has now. It seems to now be coming back. The government now, the government that is, that is in power, has tried to even go into South Africa and Bloemfontein, where some of them are based. Some of them have left Lesotho and they're based in South Africa, and there they have tried to bring them together. And again they have failed. So as it is now, we are aware, we see lots and lots of incidents of this nature where people are getting shot. Uh, Two people were shot in December on Boxing Day, and we understand now that uh, people suspect that these killings now in Maseru may be linked again to FAMU gangs. Yeah, tell us a bit more about the latest killings. Um, Who died? Who was killed? Well, apparently, according to the people who... uh, spoke to the witness that survived, who happens to be a shop assistant in the Haswadi area. Apparently, uh, people the, these four people had gone into the shop, or the five people had gone into the shop, four men and a woman had walked into the shop uh, to get services there. And a man then walked in and just opened fire with no explanation whatsoever. And as far as the police are concerned, at this point in time, they, were, they are not speculating. But um, according to what the people know in the area, they are saying maybe they know the victims and they know that somehow they are related to more traditional music and perhaps they know something about that uh, in the area. So this is what the people in the area are speculating. But police have not been drawn or have refused to be drawn to speculate in terms of what the cause is and why it is that the incident actually happened. So many- um, you are mentioning that uh, uh, these turf wars have constantly happened, but what is it about this music that causes these turf wars? Is it, is it because of where the people come from, maybe? Well, yes, particularly this area of Masedeng has two distinct groups. Uh, one is called the Rene or Train in English. The other one is called Siachi. I'm not even sure how to translate that to English for people to understand. But these seem to be the two very distinct groups that seem to be at loggerheads with one another. But the, the main thing is that apparently in their music, and they speak about each other, and they fight through the lyrics in their music. One particular song has come out now in the new year, 
alleging that the Minister of Energy, Sidibe Mochogoran, who is also a member of Deputy Prime Minister Muteto Amesing, the Social Congress for Democracy, uh, the song alleges that he is behind one of those gangs. And the party has now come out uh, guns blazing, saying that they want the singer behind that song because at this point in time, the singer is unknown. Uh, the song is on social media. It has not yet been given airplay on any radio station. But it directly links him to these things. But the party has now said it wants that man, it wants the police uh, to find him, and it wants him charged with defamation because uh, the member of their party, as well as the minister, cannot be linked to these killings. But specifically, the content of the music is what causes all the fights and what, what, what ends up uh, causing the fights between the, particularly the two groups. Now, as I said, Sumer the biggest problem is that the suit that they use or the vernacular that they use in their music sometimes is so deep that uh, your ordinary people who understand the language may not really see uh, or, or hear the message that is being passed. But they, between each other, do understand what is being said, and this is what continues to cause problems. But also the other issue is that of the sales of the music itself, because apparently they fight for their turf with radio stations, and so if they feel that radio stations side with one side or another, then even the media now gets involved and other sectors of society get involved and this is where the danger now begins. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if it is eventually found out that a particular song is inciting violence, are there no laws in the Sutu um, that can stop this and that can po- possibly lead to even arrests of people that incite violence through music? Well, at this point in time, Kumelele, we, as we speak, The government of Lesotho is in a process where they have just now passed legislation that will govern uh, copyright in the country. And part of what it's supposed to do is to regulate content. And when we spoke to them last month, the minister said to us that she's quite happy that finally they will get to a point where they will be able to even stop music from playing in the public domain that is seemed or deemed to be inciting violence. But up to now, even royalties, uh, here in Lesotho are not paid to musicians, unlike in South Africa where you have your South African music rights organization that is able to collect royalties uh, on behalf of musicians. So even that is also seen as a problem because then they're fighting for very little resources and they have to sell their own music. And so because uh, the industry itself is not regulated, they end up even fighting for their meager economic resources between um, themselves. So that's another area that the minister says she hopes that with the new regulations that will come into force sometime in April this year, all of that will be taken care of. Mm. And Takwana, you're saying there are no arrests at this stage um, over these killings? Not yet. Uh, when we last spoke to the police this morning and they said they had uh, instigated uh, investigations, they had started investigations and opened dockets, but so far no one has been arrested, uh, but investigations are continuing. Mele. And Takwana Gatane, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Takwana is our reporter in Maseru in Lesotho. The University of Johannesburg says it will subside students who cannot afford to pay their registration fees. This comes in light of the recent Fees Must Fall campaign that have disrupted registration in several universities around the country. The institution says about 15,000 of the 42,000 undergraduate students will no longer be expected to pay their registration fees. As of Monday, several universities encourage 
their students to register online as on-campus registrations had been suspended. Experts say although South Africa could see a reality of a free education, it will be a gradual process. More from Peter Bao, who is a senior economist and a lecturer at the University of Johannesburg. I hear where the students are coming from. I do understand the, the, the concept of the student fees in many cases actually preventing people from studying and taking careers a little further. And there are, there are many young people who would be potentially able to come to university, however they find that the fees could, for example, prevent them from studying. And the challenge is, where does government get the funds from in order to, to fund the students? So if we're going to put more money into universities, where's government going to take those funds from? Are we going to take it out of the social grants? Are we Because we, we've got a very limited tax base. A university for a government to fund is an extremely expensive operation. And the guaranteed returns on that are also extremely low. There's, there's virtually, and I think the words of Stalin many years ago, he questioned universities. He was saying, now, do we need to actually invest in universities when there's no real guaranteed return? In terms of fiscal policy, I think South Africa is incredibly economically. We've proven ourselves to be very fiscal policy, very resound. We've proved to be very reliable. And, and we've, we are we, government has, is putting so much emphasis into, shall we say, uh, building up the country, investing mm-hmm. into, into infrastructure, investing into social securities, investing into job creation, investing into uh, foreign direct investors, investing into all kinds of projects that, that actually benefit the country. So now, if we, if we don't have a, a, a fee, what students need to then pay, then which of the other very important and also very critical factors are we going to remove the money from? What impact, if at all there is, uh, does the suspension of a registration fee have on an institution? If we're going to, let's say, reduce those registration fees, that is an income that, that the, 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 the university is going to lose. And we have to now make this income up from other sources. So the question then is where are we going to raise that fund from? What are we going to, as a university, do to cut other costs in order to be able to pay for the shortfall? Because, again, as I said, we're very limited, you know, in terms of our freedom and, and how much money we actually can afford to pay. Unless, you know, the universities are subsidized further by government that might make it already it might make it better peter will we ever see a reality of a free education in south africa the more skills we have now and the more skills we can generate now over and over the years will have a positive effect it's not going to be an immediate effect and i do not believe that it's possible right now to just draw the money and cut the, the fees now, i do not believe that's a possibility as as much as i agree with it in principle i don't see it being a possibility now but over time, as we educate more people and more people are contributing towards the tax base, and as the economy starts to grow again, and as we are able to reduce the levels of unemployment, feed more skills into the economy, I think over time it might become a balancing factor. It may balance itself out. Peter Bau is a senior economics lecturer at the University of Johannesburg, and he was in conversation with Kumoto Mupulane. In the first week of 2016, racism has dominated the news in South Africa. This comes after a string of racially discriminatory posts in social media. The issue of race and hate speech has since taken center stage, sparking heated debate on various platforms, particularly in the cyberspace. To unpack the current situation in the country, here's the convener of the movement, Black First, Land First, and political commentator Andy Lem Tama. It has been the case since 
quite frankly, the uh, arrival of a European white people in South Africa in 1652, that has been the uh, main source of conflict in society based on the colonial disposition of land. Now, in 1994, when a democracy was uh, instituted in South Africa, the historical uh, question was not resolved. Now, we're only seeing really um, the uh, manifestation of it, uh, but it has been there. It's just that I think uh, there's been a national shift in mm-hmm. the psyche of black people, not so much the uh, increase in the acts themselves. Now, when we look at um, the situation, and of course, um, as I alluded in my intro a little bit earlier on, that there have been quite a number of outbursts, uh, lack of a better term, on uh, social media, uh, both from black and white people. Now, there's been talk of criminalizing racial hate speech. What do you make of this proposal? Is it something feasible in this climate? Yes. Uh, firstly, let's just make the point that the racism comes from one uh, sector of the society, and that is the white society. Black people cannot be racist. And that is why we are very concerned as a movement of Black First, Land First, by this uh, agreement in, by all the major political parties in Parliament that they are going to criminalize uh, racism. But they do not accept, or we have not had them uh, pronounce on the principle of Blacks cannot be racist. The danger is if you don't accept that principle, you're going to lock up black people who, in fact, are victims of racism. Because, as we said, racism mm. is the oppression and dispossession of black people by specific white people. Now, you've been very vocal about your views, of course, particularly when it comes to land issues. And, um, of course, as I mentioned earlier on, you are with Black First, Land First. Tell us a little bit about that particular movement. And um, tell us about your thoughts, whether you think um, that the land issues um, t- may tie in with the current racial tension. Absolutely. We have to understand that South Africa is a country built on land dispossession, and that's what gives material and psychological force to racism. Now, that's why we say black first, land first, because we want black people to, again, reclaim their space in society, and that can only happen if land is redistributed back to black people without paying a cent. The reason why that is the case is that we want reparations, and that reparations in terms of land, will then resolve the material one that black people experience, but will also satisfy our psychological uh, assault that we have suffered as a result of colonialism in the country. If we don't do that, we are going to continue to have individual acts of racism, because racism by white people comes from institutional power, which rests on the economy and, and also on the land question. Just briefly, South Africa today, we are 54 million people, and only 35,000 white families own up to 80% of the land. In the past 20 years, only about 8% has been bought back, stolen land bought back, with a, an amount that is more than 50 billion rand. So it's unsustainable, mm. it's not accepted, and black people are at this point very angry, justifiably so. Mm. Now, over the weekend, we know that um, the ruling party, the African National Congress, was celebrating um, 104 years um, a birthday anniversary. And uh, President Jacob Zuma said um, in his uh, a keynote address there that South Africa is not a nation of racists. Do you agree with his sentiment, um, uh, considering what's been taking place in the last few weeks? In fact, the ruling party, the ANC, has no understanding of South Africa as a racist country. They do not have a grasp of the colonial question. They do not understand the land question as a question of uh, what has happened in terms of us losing our land. In fact, 
Remember, the ANC is driven by a program of the Freedom Charter, which was adopted in, in 1955. That program is precisely the thing that has sold our land and has, in a sense, robbed the ANC of black thinking and thinking straight on the question of colonialism and land. That is why he's in denial, supporting therefore racism. And in our view, by the way, this new kind of racism comes from, or this expression comes from this march which we've seen by people saying Zuma must fall. Those people, when they did that march, got encouragement to come out to express their true feelings, which is feelings of anti-black racism. Now, Ms. Ngodama, you've gotten a lot of flack um, from various platforms. A lot of people um, are saying that uh, you are um, stirring and uh, you are uh, spearheading um, a, a hate uh, campaign, you know, against white people. Do you think this is fair comment? In fact, you know, I'm not interested to talk to white people at all. Uh, white people are less than 10% of the population, but they've got everything from colonialism. I'm more interested to talk to the black majority because, unfortunately, it is our responsibility as black people, as the victims of, race, of racism, to uh, address a problem we did not create. But it is our responsibility. My biggest criticism actually goes to black people, those who have power, like the ANC. Why are you allowing white people to run amok, to be racist, to naturalize racism, and to continue to look down upon black people? But mm-hmm. they can do that because of the power. And that power comes from the economy that they hold. And the ANC is scared of them, and the ANC is allowing them to continue. That is the national convener of the movement, a black first, land first, and political commentator, Andilem Gatama. He was on the line with Zikona Miso Elitre. Time for your news headlines. Here's Asanda Matonyan. Good afternoon. At least 15 Yemeni civilians are killed in an airstrike by a Saudi-led military coalition outside the capital. The Independent National Electoral Commission in DRC voices concerns about voters' identity cards being illegally held by refugees. And the South African Jewish Board of Deputies has lodged a complaint with the Human Rights Commission in the country against an attorney for her comments against Jews posted on Facebook. In news headlines on Channel Africa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Your time is 17.34 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spumele Lezondi. I'm going to be with you until 1800 hours Central African Time this evening. Now, users of electricity in Malawi are likely to start digging deeper into their pockets soon. This is after the Malawi Energy Regulatory Authority, MERA, gave the Public Power Utility Electricity Supply Corporation of Malawi, ESCOM, a go-ahead to raise its tariff. Initially, ESCOM had asked for 
a 58% increase in a four-year phase timeline. Both Mera and Eskom have justified the decision, saying it will assist consumers to plan on their usage. Judge Mohango reports from Blantyre. The board made the decision on December to last year to raise the tariffs from an average of 40.69 pila kilowatts to 53 kwacha 0.69 kilowatts or 8 cents pila kilowatts. This comes a few months after the Energy Regulatory Authority rejected a proposal by ESCOM to raise tariffs by 18%. Despite the increase, Malawi continues to face frequent blackouts. Most residential areas go for days without power. The public is not amused with the increase. Every time we are told electricity will improve, but most of the times what turns out is totally different. And taking the experience that we have had before, I don't think I should have any expectation that things will improve. I don't think so. We are not happy with this comb because of the blackouts. We don't operate of efficiently. For for the past time, we are just experiencing blackouts, and then we are they are telling us they wanted to raise the tariffs. That's bad and it's sad. First, they're supposed to sort out the problems that we are facing as customers, and then they should ingest that that program that they have planned. To my idea, it's not good to raise that price. Because in Mao there's a problem of preservation of culture. And uh, according to the employees who are working in some companies, the salaries are just the same. There is no increment. Private and public sectors, including organizations, depend on generators, which means they spend a lot on fuel. Many private sector members I have spoken to feel their business turnovers are likely to be bad than last year. Workers, too, fear there will be loss of jobs because most companies are already underproducing against the market demands. Candlex Malawi Limited, a company which produces detergents, is not happy. Frederick Changaya is the director of operations and his tech is massive investment in the energy sector. Like me and other private companies would have done step-down transformers all over the country, then the whole country is electrified, then look at the supply. And again, what else, what other power supply sources do we have in the country that we can use to generate more capacity for the country? Because, like I said, power is everything. Malawi is discovering minerals. On mechanisms that will enforce improved power supply, the Energy Regulatory Authority says it will periodically monitor and evaluate ESCOM's key performance indicators to ensure a healthy financial status and deliver quality service to consumers. Financial expert Lockington Gondre thinks blackouts are still a challenge and this is because of poor planning by the authorities. Majors will appreciate that they want to improve the service delivery in the country but still more the ordinary people are going to be hit heavily with the tariff hike. Because there isn't much level, level of income has not much improved across the, the broad. Most of the ordinary people, their income, disposable income, is not all that very attractive. Hence, it will have a negative impact on their lives. So there's a need that the, uh, the consumer association uh, say, like, uh, they have to protect uh, the consumer's interest. We should also look from other angle that. Uh, where the prevailing economic conditions in Malawi should not, cannot state that they have to increase the price hike for the tariff. Otherwise, a lot of people, they'll be digging deep into their pocket as is that.
uh, I don't think uh, it will improve anything. Much as we appreciate that they are going to implement it in phases, but still more. The priority would have been to protect the interest of the consumer. During conservative meetings, consumer rights campaigners and business analysts rejected the proposed hike, arguing the amount was unreasonable. They also dismissed Mira's suggestions that the hike was necessary to allow ESCOM improve power generation, distribution and supply. George Mohango, Channel Africa Blatter. All right, if you want to engage with us, you can find us on Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. It's Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. Or you can send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. You can tell us about Georgia's story or any of the stories that we have here on Channel Africa, or you can suggest new content for us. Now, the Cancer Association of South Africa, Cancer, has advised South Africans to be SunSmart. The country is this month commemorating SunSmart Skin Cancer Awareness and annual campaign aimed at educating the public about sun protection and skin cancer prevention. Skin cancer is South Africa's most common form of cancer with about 15,000 reported cases every year. The country also has the second highest incidence of skin cancer in the world after Australia. In our weekly look at health issues, cancer's Professor Michael Herbst speaks about what it means to play safe in the sun. You know, it is so important in South Africa, especially at the time where we are now. I know we're now into January, but the statements that came out was already in about November, December, and it was recorded that it was the hottest year in memory. And the Cancer Association of South Africa is of the opinion that not only was it the hottest because of the heat that we were experiencing, but we believe that the ultraviolet radiation was also the highest that we have seen in a long time. And we are aware that ultraviolet radiation is a major, major cause of the different skin cancers. Secondly, during 2010, that is unfortunately the latest statistics that we have for South Africa, over 15,000 South Africans were told that they had one or other form of skin cancer. So skin cancer is a major problem and we know that the ultraviolet rays from the sun is a major contributory factor. So those are two very important reasons why we have to dedicate some time and warn people about the dangers of ultraviolet rays. Now, some people believe that a tan or dark complexion protects you from developing skin cancer or damage due to the sun. Is this true? Well, I'll tell you, if you think of the two important ultraviolet rays, UVA, and people must remember UVA and the A stands for aging, and the UVA radiation is really majorly involved, apart from the skin cancer, also responsible for the aging effect of of sun. Then the UVB rays, B stands for burn, and the UVB rays are really responsible for us burning blisters sometimes or getting the terrible red burning effect from the ultraviolet rays of the sun. So the UVA and the UVB rays are very important for us and we have to protect our skins against both UVA and UVB radiation. Now I know somebody's going to immediately say to, but what I need vitamin D and I get vitamin D by exposing my skin to direct sunlight. The answer is do you know as little as about five or six minutes 
of exposure of the skin to sun is more than enough for a vitamin D to be formed for the usage of the body. Are there different types of skin cancers, Professor, that we should know about? And also, who's most vulnerable to the sun's damaging effects? Oh, you are asking such important questions at the moment. Let's first just quickly mention the three skin cancers, and I'm not giving them in any particular order, but it is basal cell carcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma, and then the worst of the skin cancers, melanoma. That is a a skin cancer that kills very quickly and that spreads throughout the body. Then your question on who is vulnerable. And here we always say to people, yes, it is so that people with more melanin in their skin, now these are people with more darker skin tones, they are not as sensitive to the UVA and the UVB radiation of the sun, but they are not free from getting skin cancer due to sun exposure. Let me give you a good example. Famous musician, Bob Marley, a man with a darker skin tone, what did he die of? He died of melanoma skin cancer. And the funny thing about melanoma is in people with darker skin tones, they tend to get the melanoma on parts of their body which is not exposed to the sun. In the case of Bob Marley, where did he get the melanoma? Under his toenail. It wasn't treated adequately. It wasn't recognized for what it was. And we lost this brilliant musician to melanoma, the worst form of skin cancer. Are most of these cancers treatable? Basal cell carcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma, very treatable if diagnosed early. So people should really watch their skins and if they find anything funny on their skin and it persists for more than about 10 days or so, they should consult their medical doctor to determine whether they have one or other form of skin cancer so that it can be treated. If neglected, any of the skin cancers can then spread to other parts of the body and can eventually kill. What types of change should people be particularly aware of? You spoke about the importance of early detection. Early detection, very important. To stay out of the sun after 10 o'clock in the morning until about uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon because then the sun is at its hottest and the UV radiation is also at its strongest. So those are important things to remember. All right, so that's Professor Michael Herbst of the Cancer Association of South Africa speaking to Elizabeth Lidecha. It's time for your economic news. Here's Usain Matabula. Good evening. Thanks, Sipumelele. Most economists in South Africa believe that the latest developments around the AGOA benefits indicate that the relations between the country and the U.S. have been strained. U.S. President Barack Obama ordered that agricultural benefits be suspended by March 15th if South Africa does not comply fully with various requirements. The order will be lifted as soon as the first shipment of American poultry enters the South African market. Ernst Jonovic. It's an agricultural economist at APSA. 
You know, I think if you really look at uh, America's stance currently, it is a hard stance uh, towards us. So it, it actually indicates that there's mistrust between, between the parties, and that will definitely influence uh, things going forward. I can't see it that, that it's not strained currently. You can really get that message that it is a strained relationship, um, and I think it will, will have an effect into the future. And Nigeria plans to make its first initial public offering of assets owned by its national oil company, the Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation, in 2018. NNPC, as the state oil company is known, manages Nigeria's stakes in joint ventures with international oil companies that pump the country's crude. It also operates refineries and a distribution network of depots and pipelines across the country of about 180 million people. With reorganization, the NNPC is expected to evolve into four efficient business units for more than a dozen that are mostly making losses. Meanwhile, Nigerian stocks fell 3.2% to a near three-and-a-half-year low. This comes after the local currency hit a new low of 300 per U.S. dollar on the black market amid a central bank rule to curb dollar supply. The stock index, which is uh, the second biggest weighting after the Kuwait on the MSCI Frontier Market Index, fell to 25,206 points, dropping to levels last reached in September 2012. The index is down now 9.1% in its eighth day of trading this year. Users of electricity in Malawi are likely to start digging deeper in their pockets soon. This after the Malawi Energy Regulatory Authority, Mera, gave the Public Power Utility Electricity Supply Corporation of Malawi, ESCOM, a go-ahead to raise its tariff. Initially, ESCOM had asked for a 58% increase in four-year phase timeline. Both Mera and ESCOM have justified the decision, saying it will assist consumers to plan on their usage. George Mango reports. The board made the decision on December to last year to raise the tariffs from an average of 40.69 per kilowatts to 53 kwacha.69 kilowatts or 8 cents per kilowatts. This comes a few months after the Energy Regulatory Authority rejected a proposal by ESCOM to raise tariffs by 18%. Despite the increase, Malawi continues to face frequent blackouts. Most residential areas go for days without power. <laughs> and finally, South African rand and Australian dollar advanced as China kept its yuan reference rate stable for a fourth day, giving investors the confidence to buy back some of the year's worst hit currencies. The yen dropped 27 against its 31 merger peers. This as China stepped up efforts to prevent a sharp depreciation of its currency. Data showed uh, Chinese exports exceeded economies forecast, suggesting the weaker yuan may be boosting the competitiveness of the world's biggest trading nation. That's how it's looking this hour. All right, thank you very much, Rusan. It's time for your sports news. Yes, Figile.
In our update this hour, starting off with football news, FIFA has confirmed that it has fired General Secretary Jerome Valke. Valke was once one of the global soccer body's most powerful figures. His sacking follows allegations involving corrupt ticket sales. The FIFA Emergency Committee on Saturday took a decision to dismiss Valke from the position of FIFA Secretary General with immediate effect. Last week, FIFA's ethics judges announced they had opened formal proceedings against Valke, who had been suspended last year by the soccer's body's watchdog. Valke says he is innocent of any wrongdoing. I can be proud of what FIFA's administration has done, and FIFA's administration I don't think has ever been part of any of the stories which are around FIFA, including all the commercial agreements we have signed from 2000, and you are talking about my appointment, 2007 to 2015. I have not seen anything which is related to any wrongdoings by the FIFA administration regarding any commercial aspect of FIFA uh, during this period. So what, what you are asking me, if I'm responsible for what has happened this last time, I don't think that I'm really involved. I don't uh, think that I have anything to do in this case. I'm, I'm responsible within the FIFA administration for the work which is part of my duty based on the FIFA statutes which clearly define what is the task of the Secretary General. And the Zambian national team wrapped up their Chan preparations in South Africa with a draw against Mamelodi Sundowns at Kluwerkop on Wednesday. Chipolopolo coach George Luandimena says the team had to work on endurance as most of the players are coming from off-season. Luandimena says he believes the team is ready for the Chan tournament in Rwanda. We've been trying to work on the endurance because these players are coming from off-season. So we've dealt with the two phases of periodization, um, uh, which is good. So coming into these two games that we've played, uh, the endurance levels are excellent. So now we've started working, I'm sure, with the little time remaining uh, in terms of those specifics, more especially how to finish the scoring opportunities that we are creating. And locally, South African Premiership side Orlando Pirates host a University of Pretoria outfit fresh off only their second absolute Premiership win of the season at Orlando Stadium south of Johannesburg tonight. Pirates league wars have spilled into the new year with the Soweto club held to a 1-0 draw by Platinum Stars at the weekend. Pirates' continental run has again wreaked havoc on their domestic form and despite what Eric Tinkler achieved with the club in the Kev Confederations Cup, his job is on the line as they prepare to face the Pretoria side. In athletics, Athletics South Africa will make everything possible to make sure that track and field athletes are well prepared for the Rio Olympic Games later this year. South African athletes will have at least three opportunities in the next coming months to qualify for the Olympics. The last opportunity for local athletes to qualify for Rio will be through the Confederation of African Athletics Championships to be held in Durban in June. ASA President Alex Kosana says once athletes have qualified for the Olympic Games, they'll have international champs and camps as part of their preparations. It seems as if there is a possibility of getting more medals, and we are saying that, but we are not going to put pressure to our athletes to get more medals. We'll put pressure on them to prepare because preparation is the key. If you are prepared, you will be able to get there and do what you are able to do as they did in Beijing. They were well prepared for the stage and for the occasion. 
And lastly, after realizing his dream of winning last week's SA Open for his first European Tour title, Brandon Stone will realize another dream this week. A 22-year-old star has been drawn together with four-time major champion Annie Els for Thursday's first round of the Jobic Open. And that's the Sport News this hour. This is Africa Digest. It's 17.55 Central African Time. Let's recap our top stories. DRC election worried about refugees possessing voter cards. Lesotho police investigate execution-style killings of five people. In economics, Ghana's annual consumer price inflation rose marginally to 17.7% in December. And in sports, FIFA sacks General Secretary Jerome Falke. That wraps up Africa Digest for today. For this hour, from myself, Spumele Lezondi, producer Luanda Maome. And the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. For comments on the show, send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za, on SMS, plus 27796957930, plus 27796957930, Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. We leave you with a bit of music to take us to the top of the hour.
Tá desse, é vai, vai, vai. 